0: about to hear my conversation with our Chief Fixed Income Strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about the recent Fed meeting, what implications that might have for inflation, the U.S. economy, and also what the Bank of Canada has in store. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnurr, and I'm delighted to be back with our regular guest, Dustin Reed, who is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Great. Thanks very much for having me back. I always enjoy these conversations and we uh, obviously tie in them in the wake of the Fed meetings. Uh, So maybe we'll start there. Maybe summarize uh, what the Fed came out with yesterday and then uh, give us some sense for how you're feeling about it. So I think
1: the Fed meeting yesterday was very interesting. Obviously, the December meeting was also very interesting with the, the press conference and Powell having really moved to a very dovish uh, tone. Probably most most of our listeners will recall that and uh, market's market sentiment was quite quite strong. Risk sentiment was quite strong after that and uh, markets have you know kind of traded al- along those lines. Yesterday For the January meeting, which was not a forecast meeting for the Fed, but obviously every meeting is a press conference meeting, uh, had some really interesting things. So I think the Fed, well, the first thing, just kind of getting some of the headline stuff out of the way, the Fed clearly moved away from a a hiking bias or more hawkish stance to a more neutral stance uh, and essentially said as much in its Mm -hmm. formal statement. The Fed seemed very, still very focused on inflation. Uh, as opposed to maybe the labor market and the overall economy. And there, they, in the statement, they were still discussing the idea that they wanted to have more confidence or greater confidence, actually, in uh, making sure, ensuring that uh, medium-run inflation uh, was going to anchor around uh, 2%. So the statement kind of gave off that, that vibe, so to speak. But the press conference was probably the real interesting part. And I think the most of the press conference, uh, for the first two-thirds or three-quarters of it, were very much leaning in the idea that you know, rates cuts are coming and um, getting greater confidence around 2%. And we've had six months of very constructive data on the inflation side. And that was all kind of going in, in that direction. And then maybe about three-quarters of the way through the press conference during Q&A, Chair Powell was asked a question uh, around around the March meeting, and he effectively said that March was uh, not looking likely. That he didn't think the committee was going to basically get there uh, for the March meeting, the next, which is the next meeting for the FOMC for the Fed, and that March was unlikely uh, for the first for the first rate cut. And so you saw a pretty significant market reversal across all asset classes, fixed income and otherwise, uh, on the back of that because the market had been pricing uh march as more likely than not intraday kind of watching it in real time uh, the market had traded up to 17 basis points for March assuming 25 was going to be an ease so' right. getting a you know, three three quarters probability ish 70 75 percent probability and that obviously got taken away uh, pretty pretty quickly so uh, that that discussion I think uh, or that that comment I think really got people thinking about kind of what what is the next move from from the Fed and, and when is it going to be? Kind of digging into that a little bit more and, and kind of reading that comment over three or four times. And, and as I was, I'm, I'm paraphrasing when I say it here, but there's a little there's a little bit more detail around it when he said it during the press conference. Um, but I, I think in, in simple terms that Powell does not – Powell thinks he does not have the votes or the committee will not hmm. be ready for the votes and, and Powell will not have the votes to ease rates at the March meeting. And I say that, A, because of the language that he used yesterday, but B, because almost where I started the the answer to this question. The December meeting was significant. The press conference was significant. It was a very significant pivot. And a lot of people use the term pivot. I haven't used it as much, but it's a, it is a good term. Uh, a significant pivot in terms of the tonality of what Powell was saying. went very, very dovish very quickly. And I think right. that Powell was setting that up because at the time, he thought that March was going to be quite possible. Um in the uh, the meeting, if I recall correctly, was December 15th. So you had a little bit of time kind of before the holiday break-ish uh, after the Fed emerged from its quiet period. And then holidays, obviously, a little bit quieter. And then early in the new year, uh, people out speaking from the Fed. And then, uh, again, kind of get into the quiet period 10 days or so before this meeting. So around the 21st, whatever the whatever the Friday was, 20th, 21st. But during that time, after the December meeting and the, and the January meeting, you saw v- basically nobody – Underscoring Powell's view, no one came in at all, and really, okay. and really did that. And that is that is very that is very significant. Um, and I think that be, during that period, when you could have had people coming back back into his view, because they didn't do that, Powell was starting to figure out that he did not have the votes to to do that. And I think that that's really, to, to, do the, to do the December, sorry, to do the March easing. And I think that that's very significant. Um, and I think that's kind of why Powell recognized at the meeting yesterday that March was going to be tough. Now, it's not impossible. He definitely didn't close the door entirely. But I think that uh, it's going to be a very heavy lift. You would need to see, I think, very significant deterioration in the inflation data and or some decent uh, deterioration in the labor market data. Huh. But the economy is running at a good clip, right We had um, the Q4 GDP data out last week. It printed at around 3% annualized, real GDP for Q4 and that's right. a very that's a very strong number. That's not soft landing numbers. those are those are stronger than soft landing. Those are kind of normal normal plus. Uh, average plus type type numbers, and and the and the makeup of it was good. So the economy is running along just just fine, and I think there are a lot of members on the committee, both voting and non-voting, that are just not simply put not there yet. And I think Powell realizes he doesn't have the votes, and that's part of the language. That said, I do think May is still very very live, but there's a lot of interesting kind of market implications around kind of the. The back and forth around the March versus May and uh, how inflation is evolving and how the market thinks inflation and the economy is evolving, et cetera, which I think is definitely worth discussing.
0: Yeah, well, we'll get into those in a second. I I want to uh, pause just on – it seems like there's a – I don't know if tension is the right word, but uh, difference of opinion, I guess, between Powell and uh, the rest of the committee post that December meeting, as you've described. And In my mind, the biggest factor here is inflation. Maybe you can take us through the path of inflation, what you've seen, and then what do you think motivates the committee members who are currently hesitant to consider March, and then then I guess why would they be more – likely to to do may like what's the path for for both of those this
1: greater confidence idea i think is the the genesis of the answer of your your question and i think that you know the numbers speak for themselves. The last six months in core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred metric, have clearly clearly slowed. Six month mm-hmm. annualized core PCE is running at 1.8, 1.9 percent, uh, which is below. And uh, clearly, the Fed's focus on an annual year over year metric. But um, and that number is higher, uh, closer to three percent. But the inflation rates have fallen off pretty significantly in the last six months, right? And we've talked about that and it's kind of, it's out there. That's nothing, that's nothing or shattering. Sure. Uh, Powell said a few interesting things kind of around that yesterday, particularly around supply chain. And it looks like to him, and again, it could be right, could be wrong, but in their view, in Powell's view, and the Fed's view, this supply chain glut that's been happening is clearing up and that is allowing prices to fall. In the relatively short term, particularly with central bank kind of timeline, six months, uh, to fall quite quickly uh, because you're not seeing those supply chain uh, issues really uh, put upward pressure on 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 prices, and that and that is and that is significant. And so, what would happen, I think, just from an economics textbook perspective and from a Fed perspective, is if the demand side started to fall off. Now that the supply chain side had fallen off, if the demand side falls off quickly it's going to move fast. It's going to move really really fast. I would argue it's already moving kind of fast. Right. But those the activity numbers and the prices numbers, the inflation numbers could move lower very very quickly. And I think that Powell thinks that and wants to head off that, but the committee isn't quite isn't quite there yet. Hmm. So I think that is kind of why um why the narrative is kind of developing in that way. And it's kind of, it is kind of odd. And I do think that Powell has gone from kind of center, right on the dove hawk spectrum uh, in terms of being relatively hawkish to quite, quite dovish. I think if it were him, um, if it were kind of a bank of Canada system where everyone, all the deputy governors give input and then the governor makes the decision, but it's really only one vote, uh, it would be, it would be a different, it might be a different outcome, but that is not how, the voting structure works for the Fed, for the FOMC.
0: Interesting. You, you, you referenced sort of the supply chain glut uh, in that answer. It feels like uh, we're whipsawing going back to the transitory um, narrative and then coming to call it wage push uh, or cost push inflation mm-hmm. uh, being sustained. So is that tension still present? Like it, are the rest of the committee members just making sure that the wage, like are they focused on wage growth? Or are they focused on employment? But what's your view there?
1: I mean, I think the real concern, kind of the median concern, is that the Fed does not want to have a repeat of an early 70s, mid-70s moment where it started easing rates and inflation bounced back. I mean, it's a different era and obviously different levels of of inflation, obviously. But they started easing rates and inflation bounced back and they had to forget that cycle and then hike again. And they went back and forth a number of times. And I think the Fed is trying to, the Fed's trying to do a number number of things, but is trying to avoid doing that. It's trying to avoid that whipsaw effectively because. You think about it from a you know personal perspective, like household, or you know, like you're looking to buy a house, you're looking to make a big purchase in a car, do a Reno. Maybe you're borrowing. Um, you know, business perspective. Maybe you're uh, investing in R and D, or you're doing an expansion, or not. You want to have, or you want to have some semblance of assurity surety that interest rates are going to be directionally, whatever they're going to be, whether that's, I think they're going to be flat or I think they're going to be rising, but by this much, and I'm okay with that risk, or they're going to be falling by this much. And that's great. Like I'm, I'm very okay with that risk, but I want to have an idea of what that's going to be. But if it's kind of bouncing around and okay, I think interest rates are going to fall for a year, but then a oh, while wow, rates are actually going to be higher in two years, that makes it very, very difficult for People, households, and firms, particularly small firms, small, medium sized businesses, to make large scale capital investments. Got it. And that, I think, is why the Fed doesn't want to try and repeat or have a repeat of the early to mid 70s. And, you know, we're in, we're out, we're in, we're out in terms of hiking and easing rates, because it makes it very, very challenging for. Making long-term investments in in the economy from a business perspective and in um, households, and, you know, and, and from a community perspective, and I think that's clearly what it wants to try try and avoid. I mean, it's also trying to do obviously a number of other things as well. But uh, and I think there are a lot of people to kind of get back to your question. I think there are a lot of people on the committee that are are very very concerned about getting into that and cutting rates too early might lead to a spike in inflation, mm-hmm. and that. May cause another you know episode of the nineteen of the early seventies mid seventies where they're where they are uh, back and forth, and so that's I think the genesis behind this not only do we want confidence in the inflation that we want greater confidence. So if we recognize it's there, we recognize that it's at a level that's quite constructive. We just want to be sure that it's going to stay there. Uh, or around there and it's not gonna spike. And the again in central bank speak, six months is not a a, a long time. Sure. Uh, for us and in markets, it's definitely it can it, it can be a long ish time. Um especially with the way things things bounce around. But six months is not a, a prohibitively long a period of time for the central bank. So that's that's not necessarily enough. And that's what Powell is saying. And again, I think Powell is probably trying to do his job uh, as chair and reflect the median view of the committee my personal view is that his personal view is probably a lot more dovish than that otherwise why do the press conference in December so dovish right and uh, and ease financial conditions so much right um, and effectively give the market uh, a de facto easing uh, in terms of easier
0: financial conditions at the time makes a lot of sense I'm curious on your view on the u.s fiscal uh, situation obviously big out uh, big outlays uh, on the fiscal side they'll continue uh, through through this year uh, just given the the type of funding that was in the IRA and other uh, programs yep. um, h- how does that impact uh, do you think the Fed decision and then maybe tie in your view on. US election and uh, if we can expect fiscal traditionally fiscal spend goes up on election years are you expecting that this year
1: yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's definitely part of the part of the mix. I think um, so on the fiscal, just kind of raw fiscal side, we had the quarterly refunding announcement uh, this week, and it came in basically as expected. Uh, it was a repeat of November, where they did increase some issuance sizes in the ten and thirty year. Uh, space but it was basically as expected so I, so there really wasn't uh, a market reaction obviously kind of well, I'm sure almost everybody remembers going back to August 1st and there was a big surprise on the supply side right uh, a lot a lot more supply and yields uh, shot up quite significantly on that surprise. So that ended up not being an issue. We've been watching it as a, as a risk, but wasn't uh, wasn't a risk for the the February announcement. So that's that's good. And the bill story, they continue to issue a fair amount of bills uh, in the short end, and that's probably going to they're probably going to be overweight bills for for a while here for the duration of uh, of 24. So that's probably not. Too big a deal on kind of what might be happening from the uh, election side. I mean, there's some discussion that there's going to be a couple of bills that get passed. Congress is very, very at odds with both sides of the aisle right now, which is going to make it tough. Mm-hmm. There's some discussion that we could see somewhere between three and 500 billion worth of uh, additional spending. To be fair, that'll get passed, but it wouldn't necessarily take effect or at least all of it take effect uh this year it might get parsed out over a few years and that's on a 20 whatever it is now 22 trillion dollar economy i mean it's not it's not nothing but it's also it's also not not a massive not a massive move the needle right. uh, so i think i think fiscal is interesting from that perspective but i don't think it's necessarily uh a total, a total game changer in terms of how the Fed might be looking at it. I mean, clearly, it's something that the Fed's watching. I mean, obviously, the Fed's also, also been talking about uh, maybe managing its quantitative tightening program and uh, slowing down that, right. that program where uh, it's currently letting up to $60 billion in treasuries roll off a month. It usually doesn't get that much. Um, and there's also $35 billion in addition on the um, asset-backed security side, on, on the mortgage-backed mm. back security side. Uh, again, it usually doesn't get to that. Much so those numbers actually don't roll off. I mean it's a passive system. It's not an active system. They're not actively selling securities. If if they if they expire, if they roll off, then just roll off the balance sheet. But um, there's talk that the Fed is going to do that as well, and that kind of plays into like the sorry into the into the fiscal into the fiscal dynamic. But uh, it's clear that that the U.S. books are obviously a massive deficit. But in kind of the short run. Last six months, last year, the tax receipts are up pretty significantly, and the treasury general account, which is basically the treasury's um, checking account at the Fed, so to speak, is is flush, uh, flush with cash. And, uh, and so that the need for issuance doesn't necessarily need to be around there. So in some ways, the U.S. is in a, a, a rough uh, fiscal spot. In some ways, the, the cash over the last little bit, because the economy has been so strong and surprisingly right. so, right? And full employment, uh, I mean, there's actually actually like all that stuff, economic stuff we talk about actually has real implications, right? So full employment, consumer spending, tax receipts, all that stuff, it means that the government is on a short-term basis uh, flush with cash, although the federal government is clearly spending significant amounts on defense, et cetera, and so that longer-term budget number continues to be an issue.
0: Maybe just to double down on U.S. election, do you expect that to play a role both, uh, I guess, in the economy as a whole or anything in the Fed reaction function to the election?
1: There's a lot of discussion around that. Will the Fed pay attention to The election. I mean, obviously it's aware of that. I mean, even from a calendar perspective, it already is aware of that. I believe the election this year in the US, the federal election is uh, Tuesday, November the 5th. And so the the Fed meeting, which is actually no, the, the November Fed meeting, is actually pushed already. So instead of being a Tuesday, Wednesday meeting, 5th, 6th, it's, I believe it's going to be the 6th, 7th, Wednesday, Thursday. So they're actually – they're already doing that and making sure that uh, they're kind of out of the way of the election. A lot of people are wondering about the September meeting, which will be a forecast meeting, should you know should the Fed do something or not. I, I would say that generally speaking – Uh, The Fed has uh, done what it needs to do with respect to easing rates or hiking rates or any kind of programs around the election. I mean, clearly it doesn't want to sway the election, but uh, at the same time, it's not going to stop it from doing the job that it needs to do. It's interesting. I was in D.C., Uh, last week for a policy conference put on by one of our uh, great third-party research providers. They had a lot of interesting speakers, including um, Kellyanne Conway and Jim Messina, who Mm. co-ran Obama's uh, re-election campaign in 2012. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, probably his first – I mean, I wouldn't call it public public but semi-public speech since he left uh the speakership brian sack was there who used to be the head of the new york open markets desk uh, for the new york fed and a few other speakers a great conference uh, really really interesting and i did the same conference four years ago in 2020 and uh i remember t- coming out of 2020 and it was very skewed you know the Democrat, uh, pre- presumably Biden, but the Democrat uh, probably has it. I mean, it was January, so they're still kind of shoring up who is going to be the Democratic nominee, obviously for right. for 2020. Uh, but this year, it's very much a mixed, very much a mixed bag. Hmm. The interesting thing was that there was not a huge. Uh, opinion on which, on either way, who's going to win the election? And obviously, there's a lot of other things going on. Obviously, you have got uh, a couple of a couple of people who are uh, a little bit a little bit older in terms of traditional uh, election age for U.S. presidents. Um, you've got the no labels party looking to uh, uh, front uh, a real third party candidate um, that could garnish a significant proportion of the vote. I don't think he or she. Would necessarily win the presidency, but um, but they could clearly influence influence the the vote the vote count on the presidency and skew it one way. You've got RFK Jr. who's raising a fair amount of money. Uh, hmm. To be fair, he's raising a lot of money from a grassroots campaign, even more than kind of the Trump grassroots campaign in 2016, uh-huh. uh, in some ways, which is interesting, right? Like follow follow the money kind of thing. And I'm I don't again I'm not advocating that RFK RFK Jr. is going to win the presidency by any stretch, but sure. when you see uh, when you see that kind of money and that kind of fundraising ability, you have to at least stop and take notice and say, okay, why you know how, like how is this happening? Why is this happening? You know what's the impact? Uh, that sort of thing. Um, and the original thought around RFK Jr. I think actually is quite interesting. The original thought was um, probably take just because of the policy platform or the parent policy platform might be taking more votes away from Trump, but kind of coming out of this uh, meeting from D.C. Uh, from some people that know this stuff a lot better than I do, actually thinking that he might actually take more away from Biden. So even that, even hmm. that idea is a bit of a, a bit of a toss-up so yeah so a lot of interesting kind of a lot of interesting takeaways there for sure that we'll have a lot to say on on the election for this year i mean i heard leslie's um our cio for equities on this podcast a few days ago talking a little bit about kind of impact on various markets and i agree with her i think uh you know it depends obviously on the exact candidate and all that and obviously how congress comes together and how much legislation can you pass and all that but you know broadly speaking if trump comes into power um probably significant tariffs on China right uh, and probably a, a reopening of the energy market so to speak right. Um and then Biden, uh, obviously, uh, probably continuation in the cessation of uh, some of the red tape around uh, around net gas and uh, an offshore works and, and the energy market. And obviously, quite a, quite a green platform. Uh, and there are many other things that are interesting as well, you know, like banking regulation, and um, you know corporate taxes. Obviously, I mean Trump would look to probably keep or lower corporate tax rates again and try and bring in that. Period of 2018, where the economy 2018-2019, which obviously most people would suggest the economy is doing quite well after the Trump uh, after the Trump tax bill. Um, you know, Biden uh, clearly seems to be uh, looking to uh, raise taxes on uh, on higher and I would say upper middle uh, income households and, and some businesses. So, yeah, so quite quite a stark difference, I think. Uh, we don't have Trump's entire platform yet, but quite a stark difference, I think, in terms of who wins and and the direction for, I mean, in this case, domestic policy, but also obviously um obviously uh, foreign policy as well right on how uh, on how the government will will shape so I think I think it's important for markets I think there is a market reaction potential for that I mean maybe it's not quite at the top line macro level maybe it's a level below in terms of sector sector analysis etc but uh, definitely something we're going to be watching for the year
0: Great comments. Uh, maybe I'll ask one more, and then we can get into some trades that you're putting on in the portfolio. Sure. Um, do you expect the Bank of Canada to follow the Fed as far as uh, pushing out rate cuts potentially, and waiting for more? Call it solid, solidifying the trend as far as data goes.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think. Um, I mean, I think the bank's in a tough spot. I think the Bank of Canada's in a really tough spot. Kind of have the opposite issues here versus the U.S. Right. In the U.S. A relatively strong economy, strong consumer, and uh, I mean, depending on which inflation metric you use, at but the targeted inflation rate, core PCE, right or wrong, seems to be slowing. And if you take it on a six-month annualized basis, it's slowing pretty quickly. Okay, mm-hmm. here I would say it's kind of the opposite. You've got economic activity that is relatively weak. Although we just had the monthly GDP prints for November and December, and they weren't they weren't as awful as they've been for kind of the previous. Five six months, but economic activity hasn't been great. The last national accounts data seemed to suggest that household spending was flat in q two and q three in Canada and that that is that is not the uh, recipe for growth if household spending is flat and I would add that you know with a relatively strong tailwind of immigration domestically here in right. Canada I mean those numbers are actually if you kind of strip out kind of new the new immigration spending, I mean, the kind of established households would be even lower. I mean probably negative negative household consumption. so that's not that's not great. But on the other side, the big Canada's uh, preferred inflation metrics, uh, headline CPI, and its own making between the the two new core CPI metrics are hanging up there uh, a fair bit. They're sticky. Uh, sticky structural, which is kind of that you know that mantra that you and I have been talking about for a long time now. Yeah. So that sure. that's happening here, that sticky structural inflation story, uh, and it's not in the U.S. or at least for the targeted metric. So it is kind of an opposite situation here. Um, and then layered on top of that, to make it slightly more complicated, is the Bank of Canada is obviously a single mandate central bank prices only i mean it doesn't ignore the economy obviously but sure. in terms of its official you know act of parliament <laughs> making a decision it this is what it's supposed to do it's a single mandate and then the mandate the fed has from congress is a dual mandate of course as i'm sure most people know it's price stability as well as full employment so it does take And the activity data, the output data into account. So so you've got uh, a country here where inflation, the targeted inflation number is sticky. The activity or output or GDP data is on the weaker side, but it's really only supposed to focus on prices. So now what? And you've got a Fed that appears to be on the cusp of easing rates, whether that's going to be March, which looks less likely now, Powell's term, not mine per se, or will it be May? So a lot of people have been focused on April, the April meeting at the Bank of Canada, which is a forecast meeting for the bank, as as the meeting, uh, as the meeting to cut. And the market kind of coming into my morning meetings this morning was a little less than 50%. Per- Actually, it was around 50%, let's say, okay. um, maybe 13-ish basis points or so. I think if the if the Fed does not cut in March, an April easing for the Bank of Canada is not impossible, but challenging. Uh, we need to see, I think, more progress on the inflation front in Canada. But I don't think the bank can afford to wait not forever. Is a cliche term, but for very long on on exactly that, on making progress on the inflation side before doing something, because I think the longer that rates are at this level, the more risk the economy is going to be at for a harder landing. Right, and I think that so thereby therefore by default. The bank is going to be concerned about the economy falling into even further excess supply. Its term, um, but it uses that that uh, capacity utilization kind of metric very significantly into its input for the policy decision making process. But if the if the economy is going to be in excess supply for a long time, it's just fancy speak for saying the risk of a hard landing is is growing significantly. Right. And so the bank will have to at some point basically you know, kind of close its eyes and say, well, we're going. Because if we don't, we're going to have a problem, and we're going to just kind of hope and pray that inflation organically moves lower on its own. To be fair, that hope and pray strategy is probably not a good one. But this is kind of to my point. I don't think the banks in a in a great spot here, and uh, I'm sure it's really really hoping to see some progress in the first three four months of the year on on inflation. Uh, otherwise, it's going to have to start making some decisions that it probably doesn't really want to make from a um, kind of from a mandate perspective.
0: Great context. You had teased uh, some trades uh, early in the podcast, talking about the—I suspect—the short end uh, with uh, March being less yeah. likely and and more into May. Maybe expand on that, and and what else are you looking at uh, within the portfolios?
1: So, given what's happened with the Fed, something interesting has really happened here, and it's something I'm going to be looking at, and I know the team will be looking at, and I think investors should be looking at. So, what we saw yesterday after the Fed uh, made its Decision and then we finished the press conference. Particularly that comment that Powell made three quarters of the way through around March being not likely. We saw some probability of March get taken out by the market, no surprise. But what we saw in in, in real time at the same time uh, was a higher probability of more easing in calendar 24. Hmm. And it was much more that got put into twenty-four overall than got taken out of March. And that is an interesting reaction because that seems to suggest that if the Fed does not go in March, that it's going to have to make up for lost time later this year at some point. Right. And if that trade or that trend continues, some people would seem would suggest, and I would probably be in this camp that that is the so-called the policy mistake trade. And that is very interesting and very significant. We've been looking at not really wanting to have a lot of long-end duration, particularly in the U.S., on the idea that Fed's going to be aggressive, maybe easing rates maybe too early And particularly from a CPI metric perspective, inflation hasn't been for some people, hasn't been totally quelled yet. And so people don't want to necessarily hold long end duration. There's some supply stuff happening there too. And anyway, long end duration wasn't necessarily a favorite. But if there is going to be a policy mistake on the other side, and the Fed's holding rates too long, Fed's got rates at a level that's kind of geared towards five percent inflation and it continues to hold that rate for too long, too high for too long, so to speak, to put a, you know, like a catchphrase on it. Um, then that long end is probably people probably want to start owning the long end. So that's something I, I'm very interested. I mean, we're very we're not even 24 hours here as we as we record this after the Fed meeting, but I'm very interested to see if this policy mistake where this version of a policy mistake mantra takes place and follows through in the next few trading days or the next week or so. Because if that's true, then this idea of an immediate steepener and yield curve is probably on hold. I still like it for later this year, but it probably – and it's been steepening in line with expectations for sure for a long time since May, and it's been a great great trade for anyone who's been in it. But it may take a bit of a pause. It may take a bit of a breather here uh, for a bit as the market thinks, okay, this could be a policy mistake. Now, I think that if the Fed does not go in March, that the probability around 50 in May has to be higher or they start doing 25 in May and then maybe they ramp it up to 50 at the June meeting or later in the summer, potentially at the July meeting. These are just a couple couple of ideas. But this idea that if you don't do something soon-ish March that you're going to have to do more later, I think is a very interesting theme and thread. So from a market risk perspective, I would think that in the very, very short term, and you know, we shouldn't be trading around short term per se. I mean, that's generally not how we do things here on this team. But from a risk perspective, it's probably not constructive for risk sentiment in the very, very short term. Hmm. But if the market continues to price in more for calendar 24, and then we'll probably have to start at some point looking at further along the cycle into 25. But just for easy, easier sake, since we just flipped the calendar into February and it's early in the year, just like you know, calendar 24. The market continues to price in more there, but the activity data in the U.S. So the labor market continues to be relatively strong. Growth numbers are relatively strong. A soft landing or even slightly better, slightly more constructive than a soft landing, continues to be kind of the going the going concern, so to speak. Earnings are earnings are constructive. Um, you know, earnings estimates are met or somewhat met, and and that sort of thing. Um, that's probably not a bad environment for risk. So if you know, we okay. look at that from our team, from a EMFX perspective, emerging market FX perspective, you know, can emerging market currencies continue to outperform against the dollar? Emerging market local currency debt, which we obviously hold uh, in size uh, in our global funds and to some extent in our core plus, you know what does it mean for credit spreads? Obviously, credit spreads have been notoriously uh tight, both investment grade and high yield you know can that can that run for longer and uh, I can see a path here, even if the Fed does not ease in March that if the economy, if if the Fed kind of recognizes that mistake and does fifty in May, uh, and uh, and the, and and the activity data continues to chug along at a good pace, and the Atlanta for and the Atlanta Fed GDP forecast now uh, survey, uh, as well as the New York Fed equivalent, are both running around three percent preliminarily for Q1. So again, like pretty pretty constructive levels. And that's a pretty good environment for risk. I mean, you have geopolitics, which can, you know, of do course. things. There's obviously the Iranian, you know, flare-up that's happened in the last little bit. Right. And I mean, obviously the Israeli Gaza conflict continues, Ukraine, Russia continues, you know, things in Asia continue. So I mean, geopolitics can clearly cause that. But from kind of a fundamental where are things going perspective, if we get out of this uh, if we get the, if the market gets away from this idea that okay March isn't happening but it could be constructive for later in the year um, that that could that could be constructive for risk yeah
0: Dustin excellent uh, summary on uh, on what's happening all around uh, the U S and uh, Canada really appreciate your insights thanks very much for having me look forward to the next one. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKinsey Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein.